And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've known Anderson Cooper for years. I've worked with him and greatly admired him as a colleague. I've shared stories with him as a friend. I knew, of course, that his mother was Gloria Vanderbilt, but never heard him talk much about the Vanderbilt family, which for a century in America came to describe wealth, power, and celebrity, as well as excess, selfishness, and greed. Now Anderson has written a revealing new book with co-author Catherine Howe called Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. I sat down with him this week to talk about that story and why, after a lifetime of distancing himself from that legacy, he decided to take it on. Here's that conversation. Anderson Cooper, good to see you, my friend. You know, I worry about you all the time that you're not busy enough. (laughs) And so I was really gratified to hear that you have another book out. Yeah, I know. It's been... uh... It seemed like a wise idea, <laughs> especially when I was having a baby. I thought, why not? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, doing your show and 60 Minutes and your online show and, you know, yeah. other stuff. I'm working on an Ice Capades version of my life. Before, so. <laughs> Excellent. Looking yeah. forward to that. I'm excited about it. This book, though, is so interesting to me. Uh, It's called Vanderbilt, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. You co-wrote it with Catherine Howe. The thing that's interesting about it is this is your family. And uh, it's a family that, as you, you know, as you write in this book, I've always avoid, I've always gone out of my way to avoid mentioning my relation to the Vanderbilts when someone would find out and ask me, what was it like to grow up a Vanderbilt? My response was always the same. I don't know. I'd say I'm a Cooper. That is how I viewed myself and still do. I look to my father's large family with its deep roots in the Mississippi earth, and I've taken their American story as my own. So why is this book about the Vanderbilts and not the Coopers? <laughs> um, well, I think because I, first of all, it's I, I because I didn't know really anything about the Vanderbilts. I mean, I knew a little bit, obviously. I'd, I'd been to the Breakers once or twice, which is this big house in Newport, Rhode Island, which my great-grandfather built. Yes. House is a little understated, but yes. Yeah. It's uh yeah, it's a pal- I mean it's a very gaudy palace is what it what it is. Um and that was their summer house. Uh the actual house that they lived in in New York was uh, where Bergdorf Goodman department store is now. So that footprint. Um so yeah, it's very relatable, I know. Uh, but but I really didn't know I ha- I mean I'd intentionally avoided learning about them, focusing on them, thinking about them. I didn't want to feel kind of related to them because I felt like no good could come of it as when I was a kid and sort of trying to model how I'm going to live a life and how I'm going to make a life. And it just seemed like best to avoid altogether. And, but having a son of my own made me kind of think, well, what am I going to say to him one day about them if I don't know anything about them? And I don't want him to feel that there's some reason I don't know anything about them and there's something weird about it or, um, you know, that I'm trying to avoid talking about something and which is how, you know, my mom didn't talk about the Vanderbilt. She, she felt like a stranger in that family in the little contact that she had had with them uh, throughout her life. And especially as a kid. So I, I just thought, you know, why I, I should stop avoiding this. I'm an adult. I should look at this and look at it in a very, look at it as I would as a reporter and as um, you know, someone obviously uniquely connected to it, but at the same time, looking at it from an, an outsider's perspective. And we should just, for those who are unaware, uh, the Vanderbilt family, the, the Vanderbilts were the wealthiest and most prominent family in America in, uh, in the 19th century. You're great, 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 great. I forget how many greats there are associated with it. Cornelius Vanderbilt uh, was a... Uh, was a, you know, self-made, what would in today's terms be a billionaire, uh, first in uh, shipping and then in rail. Uh, And uh, that's where the story sort of uh, begins. But you describe it, uh, (laughs) let me just read your words again, because um, I should preface this by saying, one of the things that has struck me about you, we've had a chance to work together for some years now, is that I would describe you as uh, 
deeply skeptical of power and privilege. Yes. And I would describe you as very empathetic to people who are struggling and suffering. And those are sort of hallmarks of your uh, of your journalism. Um, you wrote at, at the end of your introduction here, uh, the United States, a country founded on anti-royalist principles, would only 20 years after its revolutionary burst into existence produce the progenitor of a family that would come to hold itself up as American royalty with the titles and palaces to prove it, but their empire would last for less than 100 years before collapsing under its own weight, destroying itself with its own pathology. Describe that pathology. Well, uh, the Commodore, who is the person who made the fortune, I mean, the, Vanderb the first Vanderbilt came to America, had no money. The first Vanderbilt came to America was a guy named Jan Artsen Vanderbilt. It's not known exactly when, but it was sometime probably in the mid-1600s. And he, in order to get passage from uh, from the Netherlands, which is where, from Holland, which is where he was born, and that's where the name comes from, Vanderbilt, which is, the built is the town in Holland where he came from, he had to... Uh, sell his labor and sign an indenture. He became an indentured servant and, you know, and promised to work for somebody, a wealthier person in the new world for five years or whatever the length of the indenture was. Um, so Commodore Vanderbilt is the one who made the fortune. And the, the way he made it was from the time he was, I don't know, in utero or at the very least when history starts to record some of his activity, which was when he was 11 and drops out of school and starts working on a small boat, um, ferrying supplies from New York to Staten, from Staten Island to Manhattan, um, he had a pathological obsession with money, and he himself called it a mania for money. Later in life, it was the sole focus of his interests. Money would give him power and freedom, and to make more money, and that's what he was interested in. He wasn't interested in building palaces like his grandchildren would ultimately be interested in, and and which ultimately would lead to one of the reasons of the sort of the fall of the, the, the fortune of the Vanderbilts. Um, he, you know, he lived off Washington Square Park. He had a, a nice house, but it wasn't some crazy palace. And he had no interest in social, you know, uh, so the, the social world of New York City. He wasn't accepted in it. He was viewed as a, an uncouth merchant. He was kind of illiterate. He could, could barely read and write, um, or at least not very well. And he was a bore. He would go, you know, the few dinner parties he'd be invited to, he <laughs> would be, you know, spitting on the floor and cursing. And he ended up dying of venereal excesses, which, you know, is a very kind of Victorian term for, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, not a pleasant way to die, uh, among many other ailments. But so I think that that pathology, his pathological obsession with money and not caring about the women in his family because they wouldn't carry the Vanderbilt name. The, his daughters, who he had many, would you know change their names once they got married, and they wouldn't work, and so they weren't really worth much in his mind. And his, in fact, in were, the family mausoleum, there are no women buried. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, that's tradition. Yeah, traditionally. Yeah, and I, actually, a cousin of mine has offered to have my mom be the first one whose remains could be in the mausoleum. Um, I'm not sure how my mom would feel about it, so I haven't made that decision yet, but um, I appreciate the offer. It's very sweet, you know, um, and, and I like the idea of the Commodore sort of having to make way and make room and, and you know, getting all upset about having a trailblazing woman in, in the mausoleum. But, um, you know, I, I think it, that, that kind of obsession about money, it infects everyone around. It infected... The, the family of the Commodore and infected how he dealt with people. It infected how he viewed life. And it, in some cases, the, the desire for money by, you know, his children or the absence of the money, it, it had ripple effects, you know, for some of the kids who weren't going to get the money, the absence of that money, the thought of that money, the thought of that money, that huge fortune, more money than anyone had ever amassed before going to their brother or some member of the family and not them, that had its own pathological and ripple effects in, in their life. And I think that, to me, that was what was interesting as sort of how money infects, you know, infects one person and then like a cancer spreads, the infection spreads to, to everyone around them through the generations and to see how, how the ripple effects of that first fortune, what ripple effects it had on the lives of all these people. Yeah, one of the stories that touched me was of his son 
who had epilepsy. I have a child yeah. with epilepsy, and uh, and he had the. It was not uncommon at that time to think of epilepsy as sort of demonic possession or mental illness. He, he had the, the son institutionalized several times. He shunned him, yeah. uh, warned people off of the son. The son was also, you know, uh, gay, although in, the, in that time, obviously, people didn't use that, that term. But I, I don't know how much, you know, that was sort of known at the time. I mean, contemporaneous accounts have... You know, it describes sort of his special friend who would travel with him, even though he was married to a woman at time you know, for a while. So, but yeah, I, that you know, for for Cornelius Jeremiah, who's this the the son with epilepsy. I mean, the Commodore viewed him as weak and not not worth really paying attention to, and it it dominated his life. I mean, he lived this life sort of in the shadows of the Vanderbilts, um, and you know, it had like cascading effects in his life. Jay Rockefeller, who hails from another prominent family of that, that I've heard of them, yeah. era, yes, he was campaigning in uh, West Virginia, and he always used to tell this joke that you know, look, I'm just like any other kid. My family, when I was little, my my parents gave me blocks to play with, 48th Street, 49th Street, uh, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh-huh. um, uh, but the the expectation of the to be a Vanderbilt meant you were wealthy, and and it, all these folks through the generations uh, behaved as if they were, uh, and spent yes. wildly and lavishly. Yeah, I mean they and they and again, I think that's part of the pathology, the infection of it. I do think you know Willie K. Vanderbilt, who is was my uh, let's see who is it? He's my great grandfather's brother. I'm still confused by by who all these people are at times, but he's my <laughs> great grandfather's brother. Yeah. He, Yes, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, there is one in the book, but it, uh, but but he, you know, toward the end of his life, he gave a quote to the New York Times saying that you know inherited money essentially is a vice like cocaine that it it leads to apathy, it leads to um, you know sucking your initiative, and I I very much believe that. Um, I do think you see a lot of that. I mean, I think some of of the descendants of the Commodore, you know, were remarkable people and made contributions to society. Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney was this kind of remarkable, uh, you know, woman who lived a dual life and, and had enormous fortune, founded the Whitney Museum with her yeah. art collection, um, and, and was an artist, a legitimate artist in, in her own right. But I think having that name Vanderbilt, it, you know, would she have perhaps been a, a far better artist had she not had that that name would people have taken her more seriously i mean my mom obviously benefited from that name in business but at the same time you know uh, she got attention for it in in some realms and and probably attention that wasn't really reflective of who she was in other realms and i think i i was very glad to grow up not with that name you call her the last vanderbilt that's how you describe your mom obviously that's not technically true but it was you know her story is obviously central to you and it's such a painful story mm. you know the story i mean obviously she overcame a lot uh and her spirit overcame a lot but the story of her childhood and as retold in this book uh you know and you should you should narrate it a little but you know uh her, her father died when she was an infant. Her mother was 20 and completely incapable of caring for her. And then she became sort of a pawn in this larger scheme that was also motivated by money. Uh, people trying to get a hold of this yeah. inheritance that she had and for their own purposes. Talk, talk a little bit about that because... Um, uh, it's a it, it's it's kind of an unimaginable story. Yeah, it it is. It it's and it took me a long time to kind of even understand the, all the ramifications of it, and it took my mom her lifetime to kind of work through it all. And and um yeah yeah her father who was an alcoholic died at forty five of of, uh, of of alcoholism, stress of the liver. His esophagus exploded and uh, his deathbed scene was so bloody that his wife couldn't come in because there was blood projectile vomited onto the walls. Uh, he had gone through his entire fortune. Everything he had had to be sold off to pay his debts. Um, he had really done really very little with his life other than drink absinthe and 
you know, have a horse farm and enjoy himself and gamble. And he was, you know, uh, that's my grandfather and it's, it's a pretty sad existence. And, you know, his mom, my mom's mom was, uh, as you said, was a kid. I mean, she was 1920 and suddenly she's a widow and she has this infant. She has no real sense of being a parent and takes my mom to Europe for eight, the first eight years of her life. My mom described it as actually a happy time because she had a nurse who she loved. She had a governess and she had her grandmother, her mother's mother. And that was, those were the two people in her life. She didn't know her mom. Her mom was this distant figure kind of going off to parties um, and the nurse and, and her grandmother plotted, uh, against my mom's mom, uh, thinking that my mom's mom was irresponsible and that my mom should be taken back and live with the Vanderbilts in America and be raised a Vanderbilt. And that's, they hatched a plot to make that happen. And they made it happen. Courts got involved. My grandmother, my mom's mom realized that w if she didn't have custody of, her child, then she would not be getting uh, a stipend to live on from the inheritance that my mom would get when she turned 21, because that's how she was living. She didn't have money of her own. Uh, so there was a huge court battle. My mom was given over to Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney to be raised in her teenage years. And that was really the first time my mom had any connection to the Vanderbilt family. When she was 10, suddenly she finds herself, her nurse is taken away and she finds herself living with this woman she doesn't know in a huge compound out in Old Westbury, Long Island. Um, and, you know, it, it forever changed the trajectory of my mom's life. And I think that, again, it's, it's the battle, it's, it's one of the ripple effects of money. And it's one of the ripple effects of expectations and people living far above their means. And it's the things that happen as a ripple effect of, of all this money. And obviously, look, my mom, you know, would not think of her life as a tragedy in any way. I think she... She was eternally kind of optimistic and could power through anything and remain vulnerable. And I think that was my mom's greatest strength to kind of, it was not pleasant uh, at times because she, she would repeatedly be hurt and disappointed by things, but she, you know, believed in love above anything and um, loved being in love and loved beautiful things and loved creating things. And, you know, she determined very early on that she had a, a rock hard diamond at her center that could get her through anything and that she would propel herself forward no matter what. And that's what she did for her her whole life. The whole uh, episode uh, of her trial was huge national news. This was front front page news in the middle of the Great Depression. Yeah, for the, it, right. It was this it was an incredible soap opera of this battle among the richest family, you know, what was perceived as the richest family in the world battling over this little girl and People in America, all across America, and all, people all over the world follow this thing. I mean, there were, you know, dozens, if not hundreds, of reporters in the courtroom uh, following this thing. There were hundreds of people outside watching the comings and goings every day to the trial of the, these rich, you know, incredibly rich people. At the height of the Depression, my mom remembered, you know, driving one day in a car uh, in a in a Rolls Royce in 1932 going to the trial and she had detectives with her and there was for, you know, concerns about kidnapping and, and seeing people on, on, you know, selling apples on the street and waiting on bread lines. And somebody came into the car and, you know, had seen her in the papers and said, you know, little Gloria, please help me, help me. And that was what my mom's memory of the depression was, which is obviously it's very, you know, she was very lucky not to have the economic impact of it. Um, but, but I think she, the, you know, it, it that experience of going through that and having these people who you thought you loved and who loved being taken away from you and suddenly you're not sure who you can trust and being thrust into a global spotlight like that. You know, people were taking, there were people, there would be protests of, you know, this, there would be some demonstrators would want my mom to be, you know, that the, the little girl should be left with her mother. Mothers should always have their children. And then others would say, you know, the mother's a lesbian. She's not responsible. She should go to the Aunt Gertrude. And, you know, it was, it was a crazy, a crazy trial. It was, it, it was considered the trial of the century at the time. The country hadn't seen anything like it. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. 
You mentioned the mother being considered lesbian. That, that was part of, in the trial. There was this revelation that she had had an affair with a, a woman. Yeah, her her right. Her one of her maid testified against her that she had seen her in bed with Lady Milford Haven. Again, very yes. relatable. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> they were kissing like a a married couple. That was what yeah. the maid said. You've talked about your mother being sort of insensitive on this issue uh, and kind of homophobic. And do you trace that back to that? I wouldn't say homophobic. I mean, I think you know. I think any time your child tells you know she. She traced her concern that 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 brand of lesbian, which her mother was was branded with during this trial, was a huge. I mean, in 1932, it was unthinkable. You know, the courtroom was shut down. It was a scan. You know, it was just a scandal on top of a scandal. There were you know people whispered about it, and I think it made my mom very kind of it made it her it made it kind of dirty and fearful in her mind. I mean, throughout her life, she had tons of gay friends and they were treated as, you know, I remember there was a guy named Jose Quintero, who's a famous theater yeah, sure. director, mm -hmm. and he did a lot of Eugene O'Neill plays. And he and his partner, Nick, you know, they would come to our house for dinner all the time. My mom loved them. And they, I remember saying to her when I was a little kid one time, like, what, you know, why are they, you know, who, you know, who, tell me about them. Who are they? And she said, well, they're, they're like a married couple. They're together. And that's why they both come and they sit at the table and, you know, you know, and we seat them like a married couple. And, and so, you know, that really sunk into my mind, but I think she always had this, I think, fear that she was somehow going to be labeled a lesbian and that she was, was like her mother. And it, it, it was, it was less about really, it was sort of fear of her mother more than anything else. So yeah, when I told her I was gay, you know, she said, well, don't make any definite decisions, which, you know, <laughs> I, I had phrased it like, I think I'm gay, which I probably, you know, I was, I was beyond thinking. I knew very, very firmly and, um, and she knew the boyfriend I had at the time and, you know, loved him and, and, uh, you know, so it took her a little while, I think, to kind of get over her her relation in her mind with her mom and and that subject but i mean she's she was incredibly accepting she was married uh, a, a a bunch of times before yep. she married your dad and what was she searching for she was searching for you know my mom uh which i very much relate to her on this is she had these kind of competing desires she was searching for above all else in her mind a family and a house the white picket fence and that life that fantasy of that life when she had that it was not enough for her and she blew it up and you know her first marriage was a disaster it was to this guy who was a thug instead of marrying howard hughes who wanted to marry her uh which i would have fully backed because it was like <laughs> hot howard hughes it wasn't the crazy howard hughes who ended up in the vegas hotel um it was a thug who worked for howard hughes you know and he beat her and they lived on an army base in kansas during the war um, her second husband, Leopold Skofsky, she built a family with, and, and, uh, she had two sons. And I think like, you know, I think anybody who has been grown up in a family that's not really like a family and doesn't have an experience of a family has a hard time, you know, they yeah. have a fantasy of what it's going to be like. And obviously it's very different and difficult. And I think she found her limitations early on he was also that. what 41 years older than her or something yeah she, like that? he was like 63 when they met and she was 21 which is is kind of i mean it's fascinating to me because you know you hear that and you think oh well like was she a gold digger was she you know he was a famous conductor but she was she was 21 and stunningly beautiful and also stunningly wealthy she had just inherited I don't know, four or five million dollars in 1941, which is, I think, you know, it's the equivalent of like 60 million dollars today. So she wasn't searching for money. You know, it was clearly there were like father issues of his, yeah, his age and sure. his stability. Yeah. Um, and he was a genius and that was very attractive. And the fact that a genius would be interested in her and she had a low self-esteem and all that. But she, what propelled her was she wanted to, uh, she quoted this line from a play, and I can't remember what the play is, but the character says, I want to be seen, heard, and felt. And that's, I think, what, I mean, I think it's what we all want, but she certainly wanted that very much. And she got pulled in a lot of different directions of, did she want to be an actress, an artist, a writer, whatever it was. Um, and it, a lot of those drive, a lot of those drives to make something of her own life was in competition with this fantasy of having a family and a house with a white picket fence. And so it was always a pull between those.
find that in your dad? I think she did. I mean, she found uh, somebody who really had experience with a family. He'd grown up on this farm in Mississippi and it had really, you know, impacted the way he saw things. And, you know, his experience of the depression was a very different experience than my mom's. He was on a farm, you know, farm in Mississippi with, you know, and he'd spent the war. His, my grandmother, his mom, they moved to New Orleans so she could work in a factory uh, making, you know, helping make amphibious assault craft at the Higgins Hughes plant in New Orleans. And she also sold ladies hats at Maison Blanche department store. Um, but, uh, you know, I think he, he knew what a family was and he knew what he wanted his family to be with my mom and, and having us, my brother and I, and he was a great, great father. And I think that really, I think it, that model really helped my mom a lot. I, you know, it was still, I, you know, nothing was ideal, but it was certainly the closest she had ever gotten to that, what she had been looking for. And then she... And you lost him when he was just 50 years old. Yeah. Yeah. He died. Yeah. He was 50. I was 10. Yeah, you know, at the time, of course, 50 seemed really old to me, but I didn't realize why people kept saying, oh my God, he was so young. Uh, but now, of course, I think, Jesus. Yeah. How did she, having found this, how did she process that loss? You know, she, she, um, she needed to work. She didn't, you know, the money that she had inherited, she had, by the time she married my dad, most of it was, was not there anymore and she needed to work. And so, you know, there were, we were moving constantly. I didn't realize it at the time, but I realize now we were moving a lot every four years because my mom could not stop spending money and she couldn't stop like redecorating the buildings that we lived in. So she would move into a place and then, you know, spend a lot redecorating and making it beautiful. And it wasn't sustainable. She then would have to, you know, two years down the road or three years down the road, sell it in order to make the profit from it and then go to another place and do the same thing all over. And she couldn't adjust. She could not, you know, I'd say in the book, nobody can spend money like a Vanderbilt. And she, to the end of her life, she was doing this. I mean, it was exhausting and and uh you know it was very destructive for her and i would try to as i became more conscious of it and as you know as a teenager i would try to explain to her things that i'd you know i would i didn't i had no interest in you know financial stuff it, I, it confuses me and i i just it's not i'm not wired like that but i would read stuff about it to kind of give her advice and say things to her that i'd read like you know Saving money is making money, which, <laughs> uh, you know, she, we would both, you know, she would look at me like I was just talking gibberish. Um, and, but it, it, so when my dad died, she, she was the jeans thing that she had done, which yes. was like the first Gloria designer jeans. jeans yeah. yeah. That was just starting. And so she plunged head first into that and she was traveling around the country promoting it. And, you know, it became a big success. And, and there wasn't much kind of dealing with, the death of my dad. I mean, it was something we all dealt with, but she had to work and, and she was out there. And I had a, I had a nurse who, uh, like a nanny who I loved as my mother. And, and, um, she really, she's the person I spent all my time with and was devoted to. And, and, um, you know, it wasn't until kind of later on that I really got to know my mom, uh, more, more, you know, as my, as once my nurse was fired and, and, uh, it was my mom, you know, I was, stuff i was with my mom more um yeah that's when i sort of got to know her what struck me uh in reading this book is that though you uh you step outside of all of this and as you say you 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 report on it um you're also you 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 were um kind of a victim of this pathology as well uh i mean you know when you describe your growing up being distant from your mother. Obviously, she was a loving mother in a way that her mother was not. But uh, but she was an absent mother a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you had, there was some, some parallelism there with uh, her own childhood, which... Absolutely. Which, which is fascinating. I mean, that's one of the things I've, I was motivated me on this book is I'm fascinated by the cycles that we are, the, the patterns that we all have, patterns that each of us has in our own lives that we see play out in our own lives, but also patterns that families have or, you know, pathologies that families have that gets, that gets passed down and things that are done to one family, you know, one parent to a person as a child, when they are a parent, they often repeat that. And, you know, my mom had this nanny who she loved, who 
was taken away from her. I had a, this nanny who I loved, who really raised me, and you know she was uh, she was fired in a very uh, kind of awful way by my mom at at a you know at a time when I I I was you know fourteen, so I didn't need she wasn't like bathing me any anymore. I wasn't a little kid, right? But she was for all intents and purposes emotional my mom. sustenance. Yeah, yeah. She was the person that, who was there who I could talk to and stuff, and um, you know, and it was interesting to me because I I would say that I said that you know to my mom at the time, and she it was like a blind spot. She couldn't see that pattern. She was like, well, it's completely different circumstances. And it actually, it wasn't that different actually in in a lot of ways. I mean, but I was very sympathetic to that, those patterns. I was aware of those patterns and I was sympathetic to my mom above all else. I, I didn't expect my mom to be able to do more than than she could do and i didn't think i think i i knew she her heart was in the right place and i knew she loved me and i knew she was working to support us and um and i knew she needed help and i knew i don't have time to like i didn't have to, you know i thought like, i'm not going to be this rebellious teenager because like I need to cut her some slack. Like she doesn't need a rebellious teenager. She needs actually like oh, some wise counsel. Yeah. And so I, I admire you uh, for that's an awful lot. That's an awful burden for a young guy who's lost the dad he was really close to. And yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely you know fucked up. I mean, it's it's not. But look, I I can imagine somebody listening to this and being like, oh wow, boohoo! Like this is a very high class problem and. You know, you're living in a very nice house. You're not on the street, and and that is absolutely the case. I mean, I was in a, you know, very privileged. I'm incredibly privileged in how I grew up and the opportunities that were available to me, and the things I had access to, and the people I had access to, um, without a doubt. So, I, I you know, I don't want I, you use the word victim. Yeah, I, I certainly would not. In no, any I understand. Way. I, yeah. I understand, and I get I, I completely get what you're saying. And, right. You know, there are there there are people. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here on the south side of Chicago, and within a stone's throw of here, there are people who are struggling with yeah. all kinds of challenges. So I I, I get all that, but yeah, uh, but yeah, but certainly certainly you know my mom drank uh, drank as well, and and you know there were a lot of you know sort of demons that are not demons, but you know, her past was very alive for, to her. And a lot of those feelings, you know, were things she was continuing to work through her whole life. And I was just, you know, I was, I understood that. And I was very, it, you know, I definitely, it made me a much more independent at a very early age and much more practical and, you know, survival oriented and yeah, wanting, well, want, wanting to grow up. I wanted to grow up I, I just wanted to grow up and like be able to take control of my own life. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. You and I have... Uh, there's a, we have a little bit in common in that regard because I came from a very dysfunctional family. My dad died by suicide yeah. when I was uh, young, and uh, and I just wanted to get on with my life mm. and take control uh, of my life. And you, of course, you know somehow willed yourself to be a war correspondent at a very young age. Uh, and what could be more? Uh, of an act of independence than uh, than that. Let me ask you about. Uh, t we we share this uh, this thing about uh, this experience of suicide uh, survival, um, and we've talked about it before. Uh, your brother Carter died by suicide in 1988, and he he slipped from the balcony of your mother's home, mm. and she was there and was trying to save him. Yeah, I, I accept your mother was a resilient and buoyant and, you know, inspiring person in many ways. How how did she that that seems to me as a as a parent. Now you're a parent. The worst thing that could ever happen to. Someone. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, it's unimaginable. And yeah, I mean, it was I mean, it's in some ways it was like a bolt out of a clear blue sky. I mean, my brother had had some 
in the last month or two or like several months before he had had suddenly uh some sort of like a I don't know, a weekend where he seemed not himself and he seemed scared and he seemed uh, frightened and, and kind of not sure of his life and what was, what he was going to do. And, and I understood that fear. Like I felt that all the time. Uh, and I think we both did. Um, he, you know, I think I did a better job of preparing myself for, I mean, I literally from the age of 11 set about a course of study of, like, how do I, how am I going to function in the world? So I started taking survival courses in the wilderness and I started reading about how adults do things and uh, started working and earning my own money, which was very helpful to me in terms of just thinking, uh, calming myself so I could sleep at night. And um, I don't think my brother was practical in that way. And I think the same fears that I had, he had, he just, and neither of us ever talked to each other about it. Um, I, though, just sec- secretly set about a course of preparation. And and I think, you know, it's always fascinated me how two people growing up in the same house, you know, one survives and one doesn't. And, um, you know, I think it was just a small, a few small things that allowed me to 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 not end up the same way. And, and um, but for my mom... It, you know, it was, uh, you know, it's beyond comprehension. You know, she took to her bed for, I don't know, you know, for the first, I don't know, two weeks or three weeks, she was just in bed and, you know, I would be there every day and my brother's friends would come and she would recount what had happened over and over and over again. And Mm -hmm. she would talk about it constantly and going through everything. And I, at a certain point early on, I just, I could not listen to it anymore. Um, and, you know, I dealt with things in a different way than she did. And she just sort of cried and cried. Um, and then at a certain point, she stopped crying and really never cried again. Um, it was, she, she described it as sort of like all the tears were like, she never cried, cried about that or never cried about anything. She certainly cried about other, I mean, she certainly cried and she did cry about it, but, but in her mind, she had she reached turned the, point, the page. Yeah. yeah, I mean, not you know, it, it never went away. I mean, it certainly didn't has never gone away for me, and it's something I think about every day. And even you know, toward the end of her life, my mom randomly out of nowhere would suddenly, you know, in the midst of dinner, suddenly, you know, we're walking down the street together, would suddenly say like, you know, I, I wonder if I'd you know hit him with a like a fire poker from the fireplace to stop him, if that would have stopped him, and you know, just like ridiculous, you know, the things kind of crazy scenarios that you think about of is there something else I could have done and so I think that the shock of it never went away and it yeah. it's still I mean still to this day for me it, it stops me in my tracks at times I mean I literally have to stop what I'm doing because it's just so it's still like a I mean it's what 1988 it's it's you know it's it's a lifetime ago but it's still very obviously vivid yeah I think everyone who's gone through this experience uh, would say the same thing, which is just that it doesn't go away yeah. and to anyone who's listening, who are experiencing those kinds of fears, uh, who are lost in that long, dark tunnel. Talk to someone, get help, call the Suicide Lifeline, uh, yeah. Prevention Lifeline. We'll give that number uh, at the uh, at the end or at the beginning here. Um, but uh, get 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 help because there is a way out of that long dark tunnel. Yeah, there definitely is. I mean and 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 I think that's I mean that's one of the things that's so, you know, I think my brother he, you know, he's he's he sought help, he'd started to see a therapist, but I I you know, I later started to I met with a therapist later to, you know, learn about what had happened and and I realized he didn't my brother didn't really talk to the therapist. And so you know, even if he had just talked to somebody openly and honestly, I think it it would have helped tremendously. Yeah. I mean, the important thing I think to remember is this is not uncommon. I mean, people, this, this mental illness is like any other illness. A lot of people experience it. You're not alone. You're not going through something that no one's ever uh, gone through before. And there is a way, there are ways That's the thing that has helped me tremendously throughout my life, that notion that you just said, which is that a lot of other people have gone through this. Like that is, I I, I mean, I remember as a little kid, I couldn't sleep at nights because I was so worried about 
my mom and what's going to happen to us. And, you know, she's spending all this money and I, you know, it's like burning. I could hear the furnace. I imagined I could hear the furnace. I remember reading, I think it was a, a Virginia Wolf story. And she talked about kind of this hearing this furnace burning in a basement. And I remember reading that and then sort of then imagining this furnace burning in, uh, in our house or in the storage unit my mom had, it was just burning money all the time. And I couldn't, I would literally stay up until, you know, one or 2 a.m. when I was a kid, worrying, thinking and running through scenarios in my head of how much I would need to earn and what if we sold the apartment and then we rented a place for a few years and all, all this sort of just stuff kids, well, I don't know if it's stuff that kid, most kids think about, but it's certainly something I thought about a lot. Um, and I don't know where I was going. Is that, is that, is that the reason... Just as an aside, I mean, you work your ass off. I mean, I joked about it at the beginning. Yeah, that is the reason. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I, because I do think, yeah, I think nothing is, you know, nothing is stable and nothing is, uh, everything can be taken away. And, and I, uh, you know, I consciously started traveling to places where everything had fallen apart because I wanted to understand how do you operate in that environment and what happens when everything falls apart. And, um, and I found I could actually operate in that environment as a reporter and I could operate, I, I could tell stories and I could learn from people and I could shine a light on things. And, um, but initially I think a lot of my desire to kind of go to places, uh, you know, that other people didn't really even consider going to because of danger or, well, why would you go to, you know, I remember friends of mine when I started going to, when I first went to Sarajevo in the early years of the war, being like, what are you doing? Like, why are you going to, you know, why would you go to this place? And to me, it just seemed like, why wouldn't you? Uh, of course, why wouldn't you go? I mean, not only are hundreds of thousands of people under siege, and this is something it's important to bear witness to what's happening, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary, horrible thing that's happening, and it's important to understand and see it. And, yeah, and so I, um, yeah. I was asking a slightly different thing, which is just in terms of financial stability, I mean, are you you're driven that oh, way? Oh yeah, as well? I, yeah, it completely warped. Uh, yeah, it's it definitely. Um, you know, they say like wrestlers and people who've done crew have uh, lightweight crew have uh, eating you know issues for the rest of their life because of like losing weight early on. And I was on a I was a coxswain on a crew team, and that I can definitely attest. I think that is probably true, and this is certainly true. I mean, I definitely um, money is not like the focus of of why I do what I do, but the idea of working. To me, it's my mom. I once heard my mom say when I was a teenager walking up the stairs, uh, I heard her talking on the phone. She said, well, I'll always be able to make money. And I remember stopping in my tracks and thinking we are doomed. Like this ship is going down if that's her attitude. And so that has never been my attitude. I yeah. believe everything will be taken away tomorrow. No, I, you know, my when my dad died, um, I think he left me $17,000, which was enough to get me through college. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was, it was, it was, but it was not enough for him to take care of all the things that he needed to. And well, the pressures were part of what was playing mm -hmm. on his mind. And for the longest time, I worried about uh, reaching his age, which was 63 at that time, and being in that position, not mm -hmm. being, it was a real, uh, it was a real fear. So your mom wrote you a letter that she asked you to open after her death. Uh, and in that letter, she said, among other things, uh, that she hoped you would become a father. Mm. And uh, did that did that influence your decision? Why, why did you decide to have a child? I, I had already decided um, that, and my mom had made it very clear uh, for, for a while that she really wanted me to have a kid. I, you know, I think she knew uh, my dad was a great dad, and I think I'm a lot like my dad, and I think she knew I would be good. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this story on Stephen Colbert, which I'd never told before, which is, you know, she'd actually offered to carry, uh, I don't know if you've heard this, she'd offered to... Yeah, I saw yeah, that you said that, yeah. She'd offered to to uh, be a surrogate and carry my child, which yeah. this was this was like when she was 85. I mean, the whole thing was insane. Yes. Um, yes. And so crazy and nutty. And so like, even for my mom was pretty nutty. Uh, but, um, but yeah, she had made it clear at the very least that, that she wanted me to have a kid. And, 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 you know, I, I did not, 
I didn't go to my mom for advice very much. So, you know, when I, when I found this firehouse that I live in, I actually showed it to her and she was like, oh my God, you should absolutely get it. That actually gave me pause because I thought, wait a minute, if she's advising me to buy this and spend money on this, that's probably not, that's, that it actually had the opposite effect on me. It actually made me think maybe this is not a good idea. So my mom telling me to have a kid would, would not necessarily be the motivating factor for me. I wanted to make sure I waited to have a kid because I thought I would, I, I thought there was, I always plant, thought I would be dead at 50 like my father. So I thought I don't want to die on a child uh, just like my dad did. And so I would rather not have a child than put a child through that. And I, you know, when I made it through 50 and hit 51, that's when I seriously started thinking about it. And my, you know, my doctor's like, you're, yeah, you have a bad family history, but you've been taking care of this for 20 or 30 years. And, and, uh, you know, you're going to live, you know, however long you're going to live, but, but you're going to live into your seventies, the very least. And so, um, so yeah, so knock on wood, that's, I, that's really what I decided, but, but, you know, she, um, she absolutely would have been thrilled to, to, uh, yeah, to meet Wyatt. She knew I, you know, I was able to tell her to, before, before she died that I was doing this and, and that I was going to do it. And, um, I hadn't, you know, started the, the actual process, but I had, I mean, I'd kind of started the ball rolling. Uh, Wyatt, whose name for your dad is, uh, you, you wrote something in your, maybe the most moving line in this whole book is my dream for him, for Wyatt, is to feel safe and loved and unafraid. Mm. And that was so powerful in the context of the story of the Vanderbilt family, the story of your mom, your own story. Uh, and uh, it, it, it felt as if you wanted to give to your son uh, what was uh, fleeting in your own life, was elusive in your own life. I mean, I think that's a common thing with all parents, I would imagine. I mean, I think you want to kind of correct the mistakes of the past and right the wrongs and, you know, be, um, you know, in my case, I would like to be the dad that my dad was. So I'm not, um, you know, I, I, right. was, I was lucky that I had him for 10 years and that was enough to kind of have a grounding and a vision about what a parent is and, and who I could be. And, and, you know, that has sustained me all this time. And so, uh, he wrote, yeah. your dad wrote a book, uh, a, a memoir called uh, uh, Families. Uh, Families. Yeah. And in it, he said, it is in the family that we learn almost all we ever know of loving. In my son's youth, their promise, their possibilities, my stake in immortality is invested. And I thought, geez, what, what, what beautiful, what a beautiful, what a beautiful sentiment yeah. uh, about, about, uh, family and um it does sort of it stands apart from some of the tales you tell in this book of the Vanderbilt family but what he describes is the ideal that we all yeah well aspire and I think to. having the fact that he had written this book I mean for me I know he wrote it as a kind of a letter to my brother and I because I think he knew he wasn't going to probably live to see us you know be adults um and he knew that because he he knew he had i mean you know his sister had died at 38 of heart disease um you know he i think he knew his dad had died pretty young of heart disease i you know i think he knew uh, you know genetically that you know and this was back in the 70s when you know they didn't really know much about cholesterol and stuff like that and so um and there wasn't there weren't statins and there weren't you know treatments and you know fancy MRIs that can see how much clog it, you know, blockage you have and stuff. And so this letter, this book really, to me, has been like a guidepost, uh, you know, and something I read at least once a year, uh, if not more. And, you know, to have him, I mean, you, I, you know, to have him talk, you know, he talks about my brother and I a lot in the book and, and it's, it's the closest I can imagine, you know, there's no, I don't have yeah. video of my dad. I don't, yeah, you know, uh, stuff like that. We, you know, there weren't the ca yeah. cameras that there are now and stuff. So, you know, it's like hearing from him, and it's it's uh, it's been very helpful. Yeah, what a gift! 
What, yeah. what a gift. You take all of this away from this book. You say you wanted to write this book for your son. What do you hope that Wyatt, when he is uh, able, uh, what do you hope he takes away from this book? I think there's benefit in seeing people not as, you know, historical figures or, you know, the little I knew about the Vanderbilts was stuff, you know, I'd heard, you know, the Commodore was a robber baron and read it when I was in high school, probably some books, textbooks, and he was probably in them. Um, but I didn't have much sense of these people as actual people with desires and fears and, um, you know, pluses and minuses. And I think it's, I do think for me, I know having written this book and learning about these people, I still don't feel part of that lineage because uh, it, it so doesn't have anything to do with my frame of mind and frame of reference. But knowing the, you know, knowing who my great-grandfather was and my great-great-grandfather and great-great-great, it does make a difference in my life in terms of feeling connected to this city, which, you know, is a city that they have made a big imprint on to, to this country. It, it makes, I, I had not appreciated how unique it is to be able to know multiple generations going back to the 1600s of, of who these family, who your ancestors were. And that it actually does matter like in my life. It, it, I'm not saying I, you know, want to have grown up with them or, you know, I don't want to, I'm not, you know, praising them, but, uh, but I feel it does make you feel connected to the what to the past and the future in a different way, just as having a child does. And I think it'd be I think it's given that you know my fa my the little family I have now is a unusual family, and there's not a lot of you know why it won't know who his grandparents were and, and on on my side, and um, you know he won't meet. I mean, there's a few cousins that he'll know and and stuff, but there's not a large family for him. Um, I think it's nice for him to at least know the, know who these people were in, from this book and, and who my dad's family were from his book, uh, to feel connected to something much larger than just himself. Cause I do think in terms of being a good citizen and being a good person and being, you know, humble and, uh, invested and not, you know, and not, uh, you know, and being a contributor to society, I think it, it helps when you feel a sense of connection to those who came before you and the, what yeah, they were absolutely. able to achieve and fail at and mistakes they made. And so that's what I hope. That's I hope he takes that away from it. Um, and I hope he also takes away that, you know, so much of what our culture encourages from particularly today from, you know, someone growing up of like, well, you can be a TV star, you can be a reality show star, you can, you know, you need to get, a, develop your brand and then maximize your brand and make money and, uh, you know, all of which, you know, look, I work in television. I'm, I have a public job. I'm making money. I, you know, I'm doing something which I really care about. So I can't really complain about people who, who aspire to that. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of different things one can aspire to and ways to people can contribute and do things. And I don't think, you know, what I do is anything more special or anything than, than what somebody else does. And in defense of you, let me say a word in defense of you, <laughs> you have found a way to make a living doing something about which you're deeply passionate. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't, look around and say, how can I make myself the biggest celebrity? How can I, you know, how, how can I become, uh, you know, fantastically wealthy? How can I, you know, anyone who knows you, anyone who watches you understands the passion you feel for what you do. Uh, and so, um, you're, you're, you're a good example, uh, yeah. to your, yeah, to your I, son. Yeah. I mean, I guess I just, I don't want him to feel, yeah, I, I want him to see his the his family's history for what it is, the good and bad, and and not sort of grow up with a sense of a entitlement or the sense of that he's part of this thing when in fact it really has no bearing on who he is and what he is going to be capable of or not capable of, and I I don't want him having the baggage of that connection. I want him to be able to walk into a room and 
people get to know him for who he is and, and yeah, what he brings into that room and not the associations that people have. Yeah. Well, as you said earlier, you want you want for your child what you would have wanted for yourself. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I, again, one of the reasons I didn't want the connection with Vanderbilt is because I want, you know, especially I didn't want to walk into a room and have that be what people that was the first thing in people's minds because I think it changes the way people see you. And just as, you know, I think it's much more interesting to be able to walk into a room and not have people, especially as a reporter, to not have people have a preconceived idea about you. I mean, it's harder and harder the more well-known you become, but I think there's great benefit in that. There is. You you cover this world intensively. You know, as I was reading this book, I was, you, you think about today, we've got billionaires firing themselves into space and this incredible sort of, as you described it, celebrity culture that's being foisted on our kids. And like, what are the parallels between this era, the place we are at, and the, the, uh, the history that you've written about here uh, in terms of wealth and inequality and celebrity? And It's the same. It's all the same stuff. I mean, it's so fascinating to me. Again, this goes back to the whole history, you know, history repeating itself and patterns that, that repeat over time in, in families and also just in society. You know, it's people who have made new mo- made money in some new techno- technology and some new realm in, the, in terms of the Cornelius Vanderbilt. It was, you know, steamships and then uh, and then uh, railroads um, and, you know, make are able to amass uh, enormous fortunes and they think that it's going to last forever and that they are building a, a dynasty. And um, what they don't realize is the ripple effects of that money uh, and, you know, the time they are spending doing it on all those around them and those who follow. And, you know, it it has unintended consequences, um, good and bad. And, you know, history is certainly replete with you know, you can look at the children of famous people and, you know, th- more often than not, they're not um, making, you know, they often don't, you know, it, it often has a negative impact on yeah. on the child. I thought about that a lot about having a kid and yes, I don't have an answer to it, um, but I, I certainly, I, you know, I think it's really important um, to think about that a lot. And I, and I think a lot of, you know, it gets back to something you said earlier. I think it's so important, and I realized I'd lost my train of thought on it, but what I was getting to is this notion has always helped, helped me tremendously that generations of people before us have gone through the exact same thing, that we all think, oh, the problems that we're dealing with are particularly unique. And obviously the, you know, the depth of them or the permutation of them is is unique to the times but you know generations of people have been in the exact same situation we've been in i follow this thing with the aids memorial on instagram and it's it's a memorial for people who who died uh, during the the you know the 1980s and 1990s um and even now from hiv aids uh and it's a reminder to me that there was a whole generation there was me here i, I was here there was there was a me here before living the exact same life I was living more or less, and they just ha- didn't happen to make it. And seeing their pictures every day on Instagram reminds me of that. And I think it's something, it's really, it's a helpful reminder. And I think a lot of people, particularly who are flush with having made a you know, gazillion dollars in the tech world, there's an arrogance where they kind of imagine they are the, the you know, that nobody has ever done this before and it's complete what they're doing is so extraordinary and it is so extraordinary but um you know you too shall you know you too shall die i i'm a big believer in you know memento mori the you know uh i think remembering that in the end you know when roman generals would return from a great victory there would be a parade for them and the whole city would turn out to sing their praises and from what I've read in history, uh, you know, they would have a, a person standing behind them during the victory celebrations, uh, often an enslaved person who would whisper to them memento mori, which is remember you two shall die. Yeah. And I think that's a really good thing to keep in mind and yes, for everybody. Well, let me just say, 
I've had the privilege of sitting on uh, a set with you for many years uh, on various uh, nights, and um, and I, I don't think I'm disclosing anything that you would object <laughs> to. I've had the also privilege of watching you um, coo at your child through <laughs> your FaceTime in between uh, our uh, <laughs> times on the air, and um I feel really good for his future. I, mm. I feel good for his future because he will be loved and he will feel safe and he'll be inculcated with, I think, values that will sustain him. So, oh, well, thank uh, you. I hope so. Yeah, I, I feel confident of that. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you thank for you. Uh, spending this time. My pleasure. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening. And if you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.